You can listen to The Professional Left on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or at our website, professionalleft.blogspot.com, where you can also contribute to this podcast. There's a PayPal button at our website, or you can mail us a letter and or contribution at P.O. Box 9133, Springfield, Illinois, 62791. This is the podcast for April 12th, 2013. It's not safe for work. Recorded live from just outside Professor Rand Paul's Some Surprising Stuff You Black Folks Might Not Know About Black History TED Talk, it's The Professional Left with Drift Glass and Blue Gal. Did he blow your mind, Driftglass? He, he totally blew my mind. Actually, it was I, I got a profound sense of deja vu from that because you should I explain that Rand Paul went to Howard University. He did. And white explained to the educated African American students there about their history and how they really ought to be Republicans because Lincoln was. Yeah, you know, what happened? What happened with us, man? It used to be about the emancipation and then it <laughs> got, all the, got all messed up. And we don't know why it got messed up. We just have – and this really – I mean this is it, – it, it, this jewel refracts from so many different angles. Yeah. But my absolute favorite is the degree to which – and I have encountered this with – conservatives and libertarians my entire fucking adult life is that they get these talking points that they think are incredibly clever these i bet it'll blow their minds when i mentioned that robert bird was a klansman and, yeah, you know, and martin luther king voted republican in 1952 right. this is and basically that <laughs> that view of the world is what Andrew Sullivan and David Brooks and those people like that have built their entire career on. Oh, yeah. And it's that, all that, over Facebook. It is all over Facebook that this is the gospel. Yeah. That don't you know that Republicans are the real uh, yeah. integrated egalitarian integrated civil rights yeah. party? Yeah. And all of which is true if you ignore the last 60 years of American history. Right. And that's what is so hilarious about this is because I have had – libertarian Randite friends of mine at a party, you know, and who were friends of mine, people I knew in high school say, you know, but you know, man, the Republican Party was past emancipation and the Republican Party this, the Republican Party that, and the Democrats were the party of the Klan, man, expecting me not to know. And, and the whole predicate is so insulting on so many levels. First of all, it is a case where these people actually have their heads stuffed so far up their ass, they forgot that they're reading propaganda. Mm-hmm. They thought that, they think they're talking about history. And secondly, they really do think that they're smarter than everyone else so that nobody else has bothered to check out, you know, actual American history. And they can just bullshit their way through this. And the third is this is how these assholes talk to each other. Yeah. This is how the indignant – privileged white assholes that you know all talk to each other. Well, in Drift Class, it goes back to a theme that I've been carrying through the podcast the past year, which is the difference between racism and white supremacy. Yeah. And they're, and they're equally bad things. But a white supremacist can walk around saying, I'm not racist. Yeah. I'm not racist. I'm happy to have African-Americans in the restaurant sitting next to me, and I'm happy to have them as customers in my store. And, you know, I'm not racist. I do all kinds of nice things for black folk. Uh-huh. <laughs> as as we were talking this morning about uh, Daily Show last night. Yeah. 
which mentioned County Commissioner Jim Guile of Sailing County, Kansas, yep. making uh, uh, N-word rigging part yep. of his testimony, Casually. giving contracts. And then, and then, what did you just say? Oh, I meant African-Americanizing it. Ha, 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 ha. Ha, ha, that's funny. Yeah, that's funny. Now, uh, Daily Show didn't cover his apology for saying this because he's mortified that people would take offense at what he said. Right. The N-word in a county commission discussion on the record. Mm-hmm. He said, I'm not a prejudiced person. I have been, built habitat homes for colored people. He has. <laughs> and you know what? In 1942, that he might have been, been nice very enlightened. <laughs> he might have been really, really, you know, to the left of most of the country because he actually called them colored people. And... Uh, then that's fine. Uh, that's all well and good. I, I told totally... what happens when you're in a, a room with all white male good old boys. Yeah, who don't who have, don't have any... no idea that there's anyone out there not like them who has power and a voice. And, they, and this is uh, and the, the theme I've used many times is the, is the tribe who rubs shit in their hair. Yeah. They yeah. just sit in their little smells like you know, rose petals. They they sit in the same darkened cave. Decade after decade, recycling the same lies to, in, with greater and greater indignation that their moral and, and, and uh, patriotic superiority isn't recognized by everyone. This aggrieved, privileged, white anger that everyone else re- still re- refuses to put the country back the way it was supposed to be when they were in charge and everybody just shut up and did what they were told. And they, they – amp this up and amp it up and amp it up and tell themselves they get drunk off the same goddamn cork over and over and over again, listening to, as I've said before, Rush Limbaugh's recycled beer farts for 25 years. And then they go out in the world. And they've lost all sense of smell as to what that really, truly smells like. And so they, they, and they come to cocktail parties as has been my experience, or or they go to Howard University, and they begin lecturing in a very condescending way people oh, yeah. who are way smarter than they are and who laugh at them. And, you know, when this happened to me, I, I gave this person in one probably long, unpunctuated sentence the entire history of his racist party from 1954 through the Dixiecrats, through the resuscitation of the Confederate flag, which was in the museums for the most part, was brought up specifically to tell the federal government to go fuck itself when they tried to do integration, up through Wallace, Wallace's failed campaign, the observation that, oh my God, there's all these racist white people in the South, let's go get them, through Nixon, through Reagan, through George H.W. Bush, right up to like today. And then my question was, now, how old are you again? Oh, yeah, you're in your 40s, right? So this this has been true about the party you have chosen for your entire life. adult yep. life. Yep. And you're too stupid to realize that? Or you're, what, you, you, you didn't go to school? Because you and I went to the same high school. We, we studied the same history. Did you think I was too stupid to know this? Were you lying intentionally? Or are you just so butt ignorant? And are all Randites that butt ignorant? Are they all that pig ignorant? Or is it just you? And this guy got angrier and angrier and angrier because it had never happened to him. He never had that balloon punctured. He never had yeah. someone rude enough to say, but you're lying. And here's the proof. And he just got more and more indignant because it's like, no, this is my fucking talking point. Yeah. And you're supposed yeah. to shut up and go, wow, man, I never realized that. 
could, could you could you share with me perhaps a pamphlet about your religion? <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, I happen to have a copy of Atlas Shrugged right here. Speaking of, of Atlas Shrugged religion and so forth, Margaret Thatcher passed away this week. She did. She did. And uh, I, I wanted to say a couple of things. One is that uh, Ding Dong, the Witch is Dead is number 10 on the British charts this week, which is not very nice. <laughs> yes. That's not very nice at all. Not very nice, people in Britain. But I'll be really interested to hear what John Oliver on the Bugle podcast has to say about Maggie Thatcher. It has also given Andrew Sullivan a chance to go back to being what he always really wants to be. Yeah, which is a, a Tory. <laughs> a, a whiny Tory twat. Yeah, and, yeah. and he has taken the opportunity to just be horrified and he he did he said in his daily beast column this is one of the reasons i main reason perhaps i became a thatcherite was the the sort of vileness the the unhinged awfulness of their opposition of those fucking liberals and okay that's great andrew so you decided that in reaction to your noble thatcherite sense that bilious extremism is a bad thing. You came to America and joined the party of a Richard Nixon, yeah, yeah. George Wallace, really, um, the progenitor. You joined the party of Strom Thurmond. You joined the party of, of Jerry Falwell. It's Paul a big Weirich. tent, though, Driftglass. That's yeah. the thing, right? Okay, yeah, but, I want to I get into something that you had talked about before sure, sure, sure. about the public vocabulary and tie into this whole Margaret Thatcherism stuff. Yeah. Absolutely. What happened to Melissa Harris Perry this week? She got her clock cleaned for using a bad word. <laughs> what was the bad word she used? Collective. 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 And and what she meant I want to I want to quote the very funny tweet from LOL GOP that said uh, the interesting thing about Obama's budget is Melissa Harris Perry gets all the kids. <laughs> yeah. It works out well for everybody. It works out well for everybody. But She's she was basically making it. It takes a village. Yeah. Sentiment. Very uncontroversial as far as I was concerned. But well, yeah, you're but you're a you're a socialist, a statist, socialist Stalinist, I believe, collectivist. I believe in taking care of other people's kids. Yeah. At school. Yeah. <laughs> but you had mentioned that the person that controls the public vocabulary. Sure. Yeah. Controls the debate. Absolutely. And and the the, the words that become. This is why this is not about Edmund Burke mm -hmm. or any other noble, upstanding uh, exemplar of whatever dorm room 2 a.m. pass me the bong conservatism that Andrew Sullivan still believes exists in the world and never did. Um, real conservatism, real honest to God conservatism that began um, with – Ayn Rand's kind of view of the world, uh, the the vocabulary control thing is very much Ayn Rand, her people, Newt Gingrich, and the the modern most modern progenitor of that, the most modern inheritor of that would be Ann Coulter. Ann Coulter really got her clock cleaned by Megan McCain on Twitter this week. May, yes. uh, Ann Coulter told another of her jokes, quote unquote, and. Yeah. I don't really want to spend any moment of this podcast no, talking no, no. about Coulter, but I do think talking about Megan McCain coming out and saying to Ann Coulter in a public forum, you make the world a worse place for being here. Yeah. Was imp was an important thing to say. Yeah. <laughs> and well. those of you who haven't kept up on that, Martin Bashir said that 
he didn't think anyone should be shot or anyone should be killed, but that Republicans lack empathy for anyone who has been a gun victim and that the only thing that's going to make some of them vote for gun control or for reasonable gun safety is right. if someone in their own family gets killed with a gun because well, they uh, lack empathy. Jim Brady getting shot in the head. Yeah. And and so when when that happens, when one of their own gets shot, then all of a sudden they have empathy for people who've been through that. He was not making an argument about anyone getting killed. He was talking about empathy. Right. But Ann Coulter quoted that and said, can we start with Megan McCain? Yeah. And – Oh, you know, that's just a joke, Drift Glass. That's her that's always her defense. Well uh yeah, and and, she, and and I'm just grateful that Cindy McCain also went ballistic and Megan said, you know, she makes the world a worse place for being here. She and does. But she's but true. she's continuing in a very fine, long tradition. tradition. Of, <laughs> she's making money at it of, and she gets attention for well, it. And, of, yeah. of taking the public vocabulary mm-hmm. yeah. and making certain things out of bounds. On topic, yep. Um, the, the, uh, and I, I pulled up a, a post I did a couple of years ago called Republican, uh, uh, capitalism gone wild, unregulated capitalism gone wild, just for my own amusement, throwing in, um, some quotes by Ayn Rand and by her acolytes, regulation is based on force and fear mm-hmm. and undermines the moral basis of business. This is so, back when you were reading Ayn Rand essays from the sixties. Yeah. This is from 1963. I remember this moment in our relationship. Yes. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and, and it, it pays dividends, at least for me personally, because it, it has it. I made a little thumbnail sketch of, look, this is how, like, for example, 1961 in Soviet Russia, the scapegoat was the bourgeoisie in Nazi Germany. It was the Jewish people in America. It's the businessman. So, see, people who oppose and are an oppressed minority. Well, people who oppose business are just like Nazis and Stalinists. Yeah. And and really, and this was where she really, her, she and her people really decided that we're going to make the case that standing, that opposing anything we believe in, we're going to start, this is, you know, talking about all welfare, all government benefits are unearned. All taxations are extortion and theft. And you never get those that money back in no. any way. Well, I'm, Nathaniel Brandon, one of her acolytes, should citizens have their wealth expropriated to support an education system which may or may not – they may or may not sanction to pay for the education of children who are not their own? To anyone understand who, who understands and is consistently committed to the principles of individual rights, the answer is clearly no – Mm-hmm. The whole idea of acting as a society horrifies them. Well, and that's where I want to go with this podcast today a little bit, is to talk about the counter vocabulary for that. I absolutely, and I, I want to just sort of put a capstone on. Anne you want to read more Anne Rand? No, 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 no. No, I really don't. I swear <laughs> to you, I don't. It, it tastes I still awful remember mind. Drift Glass. Yeah. The, the youngest child's birthday two years ago uh-huh. when it was the end of the day and I was going to bed on youngest child's birthday, yes. the longest day of the year, by the way, in our house. Yes. Let me read to you from Anne Ray. <laughs> yes. Which, which I was joking about. I, you, he was joking. I was pulling your leg because it's that it was that kind of. But I, no, I, here's I, one more I'm thing. Really close to killing you at yeah. that moment. <laughs> but it's it's the way since the 50s and 60s. That that the right has taken 
uh, has has made selfishness a virtue, being a dick a virtue. How dare you insult me? It's narcissism. It's and it's absolute cold narcissism. And it's making any reference to the idea that we should need to act as a representative democracy, that we need to act as a collective group for our own benefit. Harris Perry was saying about raising children. Is yeah. At, the, the C word is just code for Stalinism. Any attempt to tax anybody for anything they don't like is theft. And, and, you, and you can trace that right from there to Newt Gingrich. Go pack. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, remember, and, and his advice to Republicans, the brand new class of 1994 was anytime you're in front of a microphone, remember, refer to your opponents, refer to Democrats as traitors, as liars, as cowards. Just keep banging that in and banging that in. So this has been going on for 50 years. Conservatives stealing the public vocabulary and making taxation a dirty word, making collective action a dirty word, making liberal the worst thing you can call someone. And – and the the pig people or the people on the edge of political concern that aren't really political people uh-huh. buy into that. Absolutely. Until their Saturday mail delivery is stopped and yes. their airplane what? tower is gone. Uh-huh. And, you know, oh, wait, you're stopping stuff that I actually like. My national park is going to be closed six days a week. What? So – it's easy. So much government spending is invisible to them. Yes, it is by design. By design. It's, you know, I, it's not. I, it's not right. We're not moochers. Well, no. <laughs> the, the the idea that I mean, most of the people I know who work in in the public sector um, are like technology people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're plumbers. They work behind the scenes. You don't see what they do by design. They're not walking around with big sandwich boards. And there, there are no magazines. Actually, there are a couple of public sector magazines, but there are no magazines like Forbes that puts the very best government auditor on the cover with Absolutely a Superman not. suit yeah. going, look at him spending those public dollars responsibly. Yeah. So there's no celebration of the postal employee as a hero or judges or cops. Well, cops, that's it. That would be a special exception. All the people who do the dirty day-to-day work of making society run, who are public servants, are not celebrated. They're quiet. They do their job. They go home at night. And that's a problem now because they have been demonized to the point where 15 years ago, Timothy McVeigh thought it was perfectly within reason to drive a truck bomb up to a federal building to kill them because because they worked for the federal government. Yeah. That's what demonization gets you. And that is the that is the stock in trade of Ayn Rand, of Ann Coulter, of, of Newt, Newt Gingrich, Gingrich yep. of Rush Limbaugh. That is what they sell. They sell demonization of anyone who stands in the way of the Koch brothers. But what's really interesting about that, and this is where I want to go, is yeah. how we – confront that vocabulary with a new vocabulary. Uh Uh, New Gingrich and Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity and all of those folks are also flag-waving patriots. Yes. And so America, um, real Americans and America and what America is about is something they pretend to own. And I think if we grab the vocabulary of patriotism and make it, I, I want to tell a little story um, about my sister who I will call red cause she has red hair yes. and she's having surgery next week. So I hope people will keep red in your thoughts. Yeah. Um, 
Red is uh, my middle sister. I'm the oldest of three girls. And she was watching my oldest child back when he was a toddler. Uh, I got on the phone with her to check on how things were going. And I think he stood up on a chair or did something that was dangerous. And while she was on the phone with me, and she stopped talking to me and she said to him, no, we don't do that. <laughs> and it was my mother's voice. I, that I will never forget how much she sounded like my mom and mm-hmm. how much she sounds like me. <laughs> mm-hmm. And she was not a mother at that time. She now has a daughter, but she, at that time she was not a mom. But she had the vocabulary to say, Absolutely. we don't do that. And that we don't do that means that the standard of behavior that I am telling you, I'm going to impose upon you, I impose upon myself. Uh-huh. And I think if we borrow that kind of parenting to discuss political issues, uh-huh. for instance, this is America. We educate our children to be competitive in the world marketplace. Uh-huh. This is America. <laughs> we take care of our elderly. We do not let them slip into poverty. This is America. <laughs> I mean, I can go on. Sure. We don't let people go bankrupt because they get cancer. Mm-hmm. The fact is, right now we do. We do let that happen. We do all those things. Yeah. So we need to <laughs> hold up patriotism as a way of a standard of behavior that all of us adopt, that we as a as a nation will do these things. And I think... As we appropriate that vocabulary, that is an effective way to argue these things. Well, the, the, the people I read, including you, and have yes. read for the last 10 years have been doing that for as long as I've been aware of the blogs. And, well, and I'm that's sure – But that's the, that is the, the counter argument, and I think it's one we have to continue to keep making. Well, and, but it, my problem I – don't, I don't have any problem with that argument. I don't have you any problem th- – You just think it's ineffective because – It never breaks out. The stone, the stone wall of conservatism never the, – The stone wall of conservatism is, is absolutely impregnable. Yeah. It is – they are hunkered in there, and they're going to stay in there until they die. And that's just but the then, way that is. Then, for those people who are sitting on the fence of conservatism, it is possible to shame them. We have discovered that this week. The, well, the outer ring of the defenses yeah. of that fortress is centrism. Yeah. Every and time those, you... But centrists can be ashamed, can be shamed by failing schools and failing health care and uh, victims of gun violence standing before them and saying, really, you're going to do nothing about this? Well, let's, let's take that as an example. I don't. I don't want to minimize it because it it is beyond it's my capacity. Deal this week that, that that the zeitgeist of how you fight a filibuster has changed as a result of it that. has, and this is what I find both encouraging and incredibly discouraging at the same time. There are several dozen problems that are equal in in importance to gun violence. Poverty, mm-hmm. drones, uh, executive overreach, uh, the XL pipeline, global warming—you name it. Go right down the list of every favorite, every liberal's favorite top ten or twenty list. 
to get the our government to just agree to have a debate required the concerted effort of an entire television network. Mm -hmm. MSNBC has been doing pretty much nothing but this for weeks and weeks and weeks. The the relentless lobbying of Congress, public lobbying of Congress by tragedy-stricken parents holding up pictures of their dead children. This is to get a debate. I to agree. Get a it's debate. depressing. Month yep. after month after month after month and staying focused on it. Bless their hearts, they stayed focused on it. To, just to get them to the point where we'll agree to maybe let you have your say in the public square before we water it down and undercut it and undermine it and amend the shit out of it and put in poison pill amendments and do all those legislative tricks to destroy was essentially a very simple, straightforward proposition. And it took that amount of effort to overcome the money that the NRA can bring to bear and the bribery and extortion it can leverage because – in key districts where majorities are made or, or minorities are made strong enough to overcome the will of the majority, the pig people rule. They do not listen to you or me. They are beyond shame and they listen only to Rush and they, and they will do whatever Rush tells them to do. And if you look up on Blog Talk Radio about gun control podcasts, you find podcasts called The UN Conspiracy. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Gun so people, grabbing. People, yeah. You know, that this is a conspiracy by the United Nations to steal my guns. And 90-something percent of everybody thinks this is a good idea. So what do you see on Fox? You know, polls are notoriously inaccurate, Blue Gal. <laughs> polls are, you know, this is the same people who I thought— I don't believe any of the polls because of how they ask the questions. Oh, you mean like when— Mitt Romney. When the Republican Party asked if it would be okay if John McCain had a black kid out of wedlock. You yeah. mean like that kind of question? Uh, <laughs> I think if we and, – and if we had a better country, um, we would have a better politics. But we don't. We have, the, the, we have sort of the crappy electorate and the compromising people. And I, I include – this week especially, I include Barack Obama in that, in that number. I – yeah. I, I know I he's add drift glass. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I uh, want to add the fact that I am a volunteer in my children's schools. Yes. And I'm there every week doing stuff. Uh-huh. There is a new program this year that I was a little bit suspect of because I was kind of worried that it was going to be kind of a faith based thing. Certain churches in this city have decided to increase their volunteerism and have become volunteers in an organized way in various public schools that need help. And they volunteer to go in and read to the kids, tutor them on math. Uh, it, it has turned out to be a great program. It's, yeah. it's much more of a kind of foster grandparents program where yep. mostly elderly people who are available during the day go into the schools, read to the kids – and go home. And it's no one has more than a 45-minute commitment of time a week, which is great. And it's not churchy in terms of there's no religious proselytizing going on at the school. This is simply church members be, being given an opportunity in an organized way to go to schools. As a result of that program, however, the school district realized we're going to have a lot of people in our school buildings who are not parents, who are 
we know nothing about except that they are they want to read to kids. Right. And they decided that all volunteers, parents, non-parents, church members, whatever, would have to go through what? Oh. A background check. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. <laughs> make sure they're not sex offenders. Make sure they're not child abusers. Make sure they're not violent. They don't have a history of being arrested for public drunkenness. You know, they're not going to show up drunk and stoned and whatever on and on school time influencing children in a, in a way that would reflect badly on the district. <laughs> and so I had to go through a background check, even though I have kids in the school and I can walk in as a parent into that school anytime I want, by the way, without a background check. Uh-huh. But to be a volunteer, I had to have a background check. Now, <laughs> you sure did. And, and rightly so. In a folder. I have uh-huh. to have a background check. Yep. There is, and I know I'm preaching to the choir on this, but this uh-huh. idea that background checks is somehow onerous. No. Having been through one myself, I filled out a postcard, mailed it in, got a postcard back from the Illinois State Police saying you're good to go. Yeah. End of story. Did it Working. violate my privacy? I don't care. I mean, uh-huh. I, I genuinely don't care that people know my background because I'm going to be in that school building during class time when there are children walking the hallways and the state police have checked me out before I'm sitting there working. So as, as your husband and fellow liberal and someone who has had his background checked many times, including in a cup by, (laughs) by a urine spectrometer to me, they didn't do that. And a bunch of other things for various jobs I've had or applied for or whatnot, which were, variously I could understand or was indignant about some of which were very deep background checks. Mm -hmm. Um, I can absolutely concur and agree with you. I will also say that switching hats to my pretend conservative brain, the minute I heard you moving in the general direction of talking about guns, Mm -hmm. I just shut down everything you said. And Oh, what I heard was yada, 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 yada. You realize blue gal, Guns are in the Constitution. Yeah. Your kid's school is not in the, not Constitution. In the Constitution. End yeah. of argument. End of yada, argument. yada, 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 yeah. yada. That's yeah. it. I mean, there's... Which whatever. is why we need a constitutional amendment undoing the Second Amendment to the Constitution or redefining it. Which will never happen. <laughs> Which will never happen. Which will never happen. So, I mean, I, I, I am... The newspapers, the editorial columns of, our, of all newspapers are full of columns by well-intentioned people and morons like Tom Friedman who talk a lot about the way things should be. And uh, that's, that's all well and good. I, I, I'm halfway through a post right now about David Brooks restaurant critic who thinks that his favorite restaurant has a jam and awesome bacon, lettuce and tomato sandwich, except of course they don't really have any bacon. They don't have any tomatoes and, they don't have any lettuce and they don't have any bread. They don't have any stools. They don't have any tables and it burned down 50 years ago. But other than that, his restaurant has an awesome bacon, lettuce and tomato sandwich. If we had better conservatives, all the things that you and I want to happen would happen. Yeah. yeah. If we had congressmen who weren't bought off whores for the murder industry in this country, mm-hmm. who weren't beholden to the pig people, we'd have a better country. If Barack Obama were really a liberal, we'd have a better country. Mm-hmm. Of course, he never would have been elected president. He'd be Bernie Sanders. Yeah. He'd be Dennis Kucinich. He never would have actually won anything. And so 
the problem I have is part, the the left part of my brain agrees with everything that you say because it accurately f- reflects what I believe. The right half of my brain says, yeah, but that's not the country I live in. Yeah. The country yeah. I live in is full of people who will not listen to any argument you or I make at all ever. I'm going to toss in a Game of Thrones reference now, though. Yes. The the little girl who learned from her dance master. Yes. It's actually her sword fighting teacher. Yes. What do we say to death? Not today. Not today. And I wrote in my notes for this week in my prayer list. Uh huh. What do we say to despair? Not today. Not today. Well, and I I'm not Keep despairing. Fighting. I'm I'm saying that if you're if anyone's looking for a short term fix to anything, forget it. Yeah, but the Sandy Hook parents are looking for answers. Yes, and they're they're honest and and they're earning the respect of a lot of people, and they, they may be winning. Abs- I completely agree, and if if this is a discussion about how we can improve this country over the next fifty years, then I'm right there with you. But if every single <laughs> if every single thing you want to do, this is I, I'm not despairing. I'm exhausted. Yeah, I know. Because if everything you want to do, every little incremental change, every can we discuss maybe not cutting Social Security? Could we discuss that? Well, yeah, but we're gonna get there in a minute. I want to talk about Dick Durbin for a sec. Quick well, sec. I I, I want to end that and then go on to Dick Durbin and come back to Social Security. Yes. If if every little discussion that we want to have on the left. That that is simply involves not giving away more of our shit. Comes down to yeah, but you have to understand there are millions of of people, there are billions of dollars who are tirelessly like Cerberus. It never they never sleep, they never go to bed. They uh, they spend all day and all night passionately hating everything you do and opposing it, no matter what you do. If it's a UN treaty to help veterans. We're going to filibuster it. And and we're going to filibuster it with one of our venerable senators, former presidential candidates in a wheelchair sitting there begging us watching to do it. us do it. And yeah. we don't care. And we reflect the views of millions and millions of your fellow citizens who are completely divorced from this country. And that's one of Charlie Pierce's very good columns before we skip on to Dick Durbin. Oh, yeah. Talk about that for a minute, because that was was depressing, but it was also very insightful. Was it was this last week? I'm I'm misquoting it from memory. This last week or two or three pretty much proves that the, the speech that made Barack Obama's career. There's not a red America. There's not a blue America. There's a there's a it's there's bullshit. a United States of America. It's all bullshit. It's all there bullshit. really are two yeah. Americas. They really are. <laughs> they really have nothing in common other than you know their genetic material and the fact we breathe air and drink water and so forth. And they are diametrically opposed to each other. And the people who live in red America really hate us and really don't want us to succeed and really have a distinctly different, completely oppositional, completely intractable, non-negotiable worldview. That you're never going to convince them to change, and that that is the country we really do live in. And the only and what do we say to despair, Driftglass? Not today. Not today. Not today. And that's we have something nice to say about the Democratic senatorial campaign. We do. Committee, so if you're which a liberal, we, I thought we would never have. If yeah. you're a liberal, you have to be in this for the long haul. Right. Absolutely. All right. Speaking of which, Dick Durbin. Dick Durbin. 
we got uh, robocalls from Dick Durbin this week. Uh huh. Two of them, sure. and and it's it's election week here in Illinois. We voted on Tuesday, and you were not number six six six. No, not this. You time. were number thirty four or something. I don't think like if that. if that poll had been open for a week, there would have been six hundred sixty six people. No, <laughs> I don't think so. This was a local election. Uh huh. But, but that's the point. And voted. We voted. Yes. Dick Durbin calls. Yeah. Dick Durbin called to weigh in on our local school board election. Good for him. To he say did. that so-and-so is my friend that I've known her for years, and she'd make an excellent school board. He didn't trash anybody. He didn't yeah. down-talk anybody. But but our senator— he gave our, this one woman's name and said she would make a good school board member. We hope you'll vote for her. Yeah. The end. Uh-huh. That's and, how you do it, baby. Yeah. That's how you do and it. And that's how the Koch brothers have been doing it for a long time. So let's get on board that game and make sure we win it. So At the local school board, at the county commissioner level, at the PTA level, at the local, state, and uh, legislature level. That, that's the bench. That's the deep bench. That's where all the action is on the right right now. And all I will action- say that this particular candidate uh, is very well connected yes. in Democratic circles in Washington. So yes. – there was something to be said for her in terms of – I don't think Dick Durbin was lying. I think she was his personal friend. Yeah. But well, and he he took the time, and his that was paid for by the Democratic Senate people. And we had people so, canvassing this neighborhood. Oh, yeah. It, Big time. Door-to-door with their kids. With if our wanted, kids. They borrowed our kids yeah, they did. to go canvass. You bring your kids too. And our and youngest could, got really involved. It was fascinating to me to watch her because she grows up in this house. There's yeah. no way she cannot be aware politic become aware politically. But she had really strong opinions. Yeah. One of the candidates for school board sent her young children, This one of the candidates sent her young children to parochial school uh-huh. and was running for the school board, for the uh, public school school board. Well, she said, she's, and her point was, well, I send them to public high school. Uh-huh. But okay. for, for elementary school, they all go to parochial schools. And, yeah. and my, our youngest daughter was horrified that the schools that she goes to, <laughs> This this candidate was thinking she could be on the school board of her schools and not send her kids to her school. Was horrified in the way only a nine year old can be yeah, horrified. Yeah, yeah. What? What? That's ridiculous. <laughs> and and it was and we had we really did make a distinction. We 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 do have these talks. You know, we don't tell well my stepkids, your kids, our kids to be spiteful or angry. We, we we sit them down and say there's an important distinction to be made between the neighbor who we have, who has kids, who goes to some of the same places we do, who's probably very nice, who would go barbecue at their place or whatnot. They're probably – let's give them the benefit of that. They're probably really nice people. But their ideas are, are – we disagree with them. Yeah. And it's perfectly okay. And we also made the case to the nine-year-old that we vote for someone, not against someone, yeah, wherever exactly. possible. Wherever possible. Sometimes it's not possible. <laughs> but wherever possible, exactly. So the, the message is not— So we made it not, clear that there was a good candidate for school board that we liked, that, and she had been out canvassing with one of our neighbors. Uh-huh. We say, can I take your kids with me? And here's the candidate. Oh, it's for her? Sure. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> and so, yeah, teenage or older is when you start— talking to them about the lesser of two evils yeah 
No, I'm sorry, man. Nine-year-olds um, have a very black and white view of the world. Yes, as well they should. <laughs> and and this is these are simply stages in, 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 that people go through. Yeah. And each one of them is valid and uh, cherished and worth remembering and worth integrating into the, the whole person. Um, the person I was when I was 22 is not at all the same person I am, except there are elements that are exactly the same. And, and Drift Boss, I, we are at 41 minutes, so yes. and, and Stump the Chump is coming, so I want oh, yes. on to Social Security for just a moment. Please, hold forth. Uh, and here. I listened to David Axelrod on Rachel Maddow and her ah. calling him out and saying, this is absurd. If you really care about the long-term stability of Social Security, then increasing the cap should yeah. be on the table. Yeah. But watching David Axelrod, I really came to the conclusion, and it really was during that interview that I came to the conclusion that Drift, that um, Barack Obama does want to cut Social Security. Yes. That that well, really to, is something he wants to do. He wants to cut, he wants to cut the cost of living increases. Yeah, and, and, and the growth of the program. Yes. And I think the reason he's doing that, and this is just my conclusion, you can disagree with me, but I think he's looking at the budget as a Gen Xer. Yeah. And that he really does think that he, I think he's making a false choice and a politically stupid choice by saying this, but I think he really does believe that he needs to limit spending on seniors in favor of Head Start and job creation. Right. And, so, and that's... Instead of choosing between tax cuts for billionaires, wasteful Pentagon spending, and then exactly. on the other side of that argument is Social Security, Head Start, food programs for kids, et cetera. And all those things. And all those things. Yeah. Let's do it that way. Yeah. The reason the Beltway media loves this move, and I had a really good email conversation with Heather at Crooks and Liars last night about this. The Beltway media, this has to do with their wealth. Yes. Their wealth comes from their big paychecks and their big contracts. And so payroll taxes are going to affect them in the largest way of all the one percenters out there. They are going to be most affected by payroll taxes because their wealth comes from a paycheck. Chris Matthews knows and Joe Scarborough knows and Mark Helprin knows and all these Beltway insiders, Chuck Todd, all know that at some point. Probably March yeah. or April. Yeah. Suddenly they, they don't pay. They have payroll. a lot more money in their paycheck. For the rest of the year. And so any grand bargain that doesn't affect payroll taxes is something they're going to get very excited about. Yeah. So that, well, those are my two conclusions. And the, the, Mr. Lawrence O'Donnell did a little history lesson yesterday. On well, the and fact a lot that, of people were upset with him, too. Yeah. He's, well, I, he's really, again, beltway splaining, as we yeah. might say. Yeah, well, his, his premise, his history lessons were fine. They were they were accurate. His conclusions were bullshit. But his premises were, look, we have adjusted Social Security before. We have increased the retirement age. We have cut benefits before. These things have, in fact, happened. They've happened under Democratic administrations. They've happened under Democratic guidance. It's not the first time it's ever happened. Uh, but I agree with you. It's, it is a completely false choice. If there is – Social Security has nothing to do with the deficit, mm -hmm. nothing at all to do with the deficit. Take, if you want to reform it, if, it, if you think that there's something that is, is crying out to be reformed with Social Security, put it aside. Take it over to a different room. With a bunch of people who haven't been slavering or slavering for the last 50 years to destroy it and fix it. 
Well, and, and the way to if you, if you think that it's bad that rich people are getting Social Security, that people who have lots and lots and lots of money uh-huh. in their retirement age are getting Social Security checks from the government, tax them earlier. Yeah. <laughs> Raise the cap so that they are paying more into the system. Uh-huh. And but don't... then don't turn it into a welfare program. Don't turn it into a needs-based thing because then we all know what happens to yes, it. Yes, it Five years later, it's gone. Gone. It's stripped down to its bones and it's sold to the stock market. So there are good arguments to be made for correcting, amending, updating, renegotiating various elements of the New Deal and the Great Society and and Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security and every other social safety net system. There's an enormously good case to be made for taking the patchwork nonsense that is America's job retraining, training system, job program, adult education system, which is spread over 10 government departments and state, local, et cetera. A huge amount of overlap, a lot of wasted money. There's a lot of logic, for example, to redoing that program from top to bottom. On paper, (laughs) in reality, it's never going to happen. The job training money that's in the housing budget is there for a distinctly different reason than the job training money that's in the Department of Labor budget. They serve different constituencies. They accomplish different things. And if you think you could ever get all of those people to cooperate at the federal level and they get all the state and local people to say, oh, we have these other programs, but you know, we're just going to let the Fed do its thing. We're going to cooperate, et cetera. You don't understand how governments work, especially how when you're crossing municipal boundaries – up and down the food chain, trying to make things make logical sense. There's plenty of waste and overlap in that system. It stands, it needs to be reformed. But the only way you're going to do that is get people of good faith together to do it. You never, you should never be allowed at the table if you think fundamentally the program that you're in charge of reforming should be destroyed. And, That's and, my- and right alongside of that, there's a lot of basic scientific research that leads to nothing. Yeah. There's a lot of drug Absolutely. trials that lead to nothing. There's a lot of et cetera. But of, if you if you're against science, <laughs> yeah, a lot of if the, you're against evolution and you're against science and you're against learning, and so you don't want to spend any money on any of that, then you're not talking at the same level as normal no. healthy society is talking. It, you you build into the budget especially science and basic research, you build into that sort of an Edison rule of thumb. The first 99 things you try to make a light bulb are going to fail. And a lot of the things you try with people, with getting people to do different things, to behave a different way, to learn something new, to learn in a new way, are going to fail. But if you count those failures as a waste of money, just because they didn't work, You don't understand how things work. Waste of money is if you have a program that has failed over and over and over again, and you just keep doing it. You mean like cutting billionaires' tax returns and saying that it's increased revenue? Very much like that, yes. (laughs) Social Security has worked. Yeah. Medicare has worked. <laughs> Medicare works great. Medicare needs cost control, but so yeah. does every other health care system. You need to get big pharma to negotiate for drug prices. Yes. But they work. Yeah. And and people like them and people want us to pay for them. And people want to pay for that. Head now. start works. It peters out after a while, but that argues for continuing doing what you've been doing on up through the child's Elementary. entire educational experience. Yeah. 
not for getting rid of it. I want to read a letter, Drift Class, because we are really running out of time. Absolutely. Sam in South Carolina, uh-huh. who attended an Elizabeth Colbert Bush event. And good for him. So uh, he, he gave us some insider track on this. And it's related to uh, her main story was about investment in education and research. Uh-huh. She gave a specific example of a Center for Wind tar- Turbine Research and Development near Charleston, South Carolina, that has generated 1,000 jobs in engineering and manufacturing parts for wind turbines. That can't possibly be true, Blue Gal. Those are government jobs. They aren't real jobs. Yeah. 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 Okay. The funding for the center was half state dollars and half private dollars. She pointed out that Mark Sanford as governor had vetoed the state funding, and he was overridden by the legislature. She was implicating that government can promote economic development, Drift Glass. Really? Yeah. <laughs> really? She pointed out that Sanford is basically an anti-government nut, and uh, she didn't say that outright, Sam says, but she did say that she rejects pessimism. Not today. And she believes that good times can be ahead of us with smart government action. So let's hope she gets elected to the House of Representatives, Drift Glass. Well, yeah. And, and, I'll endorse her. And if we could take the magic of the Tesseract, the magic time travel, and fold the best of what was going on, the best of what, not the whole society, the best of, of conservative thinking from 1952, <laughs> mm-hmm. and fold it right up into Elizabeth Colbert Bush's backyard. Yeah. And you would have highway system and you have those green those green eye shade. You'd have you know, Robert Anson Heinlein yeah. who went in front of the U.S. Senate and argued for the space program, argued for research, pointed out it always pays off. Here are all the tangible benefits you have gotten from miniaturization to the entire phone system and satellites to remote medical technology, blah blah. All of which came from this investment in. Not in getting moon rocks, but in getting there, building getting the there. technology to get there. Had, has Huge had medical built, advances, built entire industries. Absolutely. And that, and the and he and he had to argue against Walter Mondale about that. He did. Walter he did. Mondale wanted social spending. He wanted that. He, this wasting all that money sending men to the moon when we could be spending on a poverty on Earth. Again, a false choice. You're right. Mm-hmm. We should be spending money. We should get the hell out of Vietnam. <laughs> yeah. And and we should stop blowing money on stupid shit and focus on but you can't ignore the fact that you don't get to have the benefits of all of those things in the next generation if you don't spend to research them in this generation you don't get the benefits of a generation of well-educated engineers and scientists and mathematicians next generation if you don't put them through head start at elementary school and feed them and clothe them and care for them as if they were our collective children this generation Anyway, you use that collective word again. I did. And I did it proudly. So fuck you. <laughs> I was worried we were going to get a fuck you out of you. This yeah. drift glass. Well, these people just, you know, I just stupid people. Again, stupid people you can deal with. Arrogant people you can deal with. But arrogant, stupid, man. Uh, it's tough. Harlan Ellison said, you just can't beat that. You just no way around them over or through them. There's just nothing. You can't get them out of the way. I want to. Mention also, in addition to Sam's letter, that we received three separate emails from listeners this week promising us that they will send us money when their tax refund arrives. Ah. And I want you to know that we totally get that. 
We sure do. We sure do. So thank you for your promise of that. And uh, we look forward to hearing from you in any event. Each week, we post to our Facebook page and website an Internet Kitty sent in by you, the listeners. This week's Internet Kitty is Max from Austria. And in this picture in Austria, Max is lying on the back of a sofa like he just don't care. He just don't care. And uh, looks very, very comfortable there. So you can send your Internet Kitty to us at our email address, proleftpodcast at gmail.com, where you can also write to both of us. We love hearing from you guys feel free to write us. Be aware that if you write us at any of our addresses, we reserve the right to read your email or U.S. Postal Service Go Postal Union letter on the air unless you say otherwise. So, Blue Gal, how are those Internet Kitties doing this week? The Internet Kitties are waiting for their Up With Steve Kornacki kibble dishes. Let's think about living. Let's think about loving. Let's think about the hooping and the hopping and the bopping and the loving, loving, loving. Let's forget about the wine and the crying, the shooting and the dying, and the fellow with a switchblade knife. Let's think about living. Let's think about life. The Professional F Podcast is recorded under a Creative Commons license. Copyright 2013. Driftglass Blue Gal Podcast. All right. Uh, Stump the Chump, we have two letters today. Thank you so much for those of you who sent in Stump the Chump questions. Yay! Stump the Chump. My least favorite portion of the show. <laughs> and it was my idea, too. Now, it's, now I get to look stupid every week. I, I don't think you look stupid. <laughs> well, I think you cards. look obsessed. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, both of those are true. You know, Keep those cards and letters coming. Yeah, they because, do. Uh, uh, the know. first one is from Roger, who claims to be Asperger-ish. Oh. Welcome to the club, Roger. <laughs> yeah, it's a big club, Roger. <laughs> All right. He says... The default mode of science fiction, and particularly American science fiction, does tend to be right libertarian, although this is reversed for more recent British science fiction, which is predominantly left-wing. And I would add, thank you, Margaret Thatcher. Yeah. <laughs> he particularly recommends uh, Ian M. Banks, who tragically announced he's terminally ill last week, Ken McLeod, Richard Morgan, Charles Strauss, and China Meville, or Myville. Well, As I, writers I, of explicitly political science fiction from a left-wing liberal perspective. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. But even in the days when science fiction was dominated by the likes of Heinlein, Anderson, and Niven, there were radical outliers. There were. That's Here's true. a couple of questions inspired by them. Oh, that's nice to have a theme there. Okay. That, that's, this, is the, this would be the probably new wave. Between the 60s and mid-70s, there, there was the science fiction new wave when a whole lot of writers. It wasn't all engineers and scientists. It was actually writers turning to science fiction. Fans became writers, and a lot more social justice, civil rights issues, and drugs hmm. became infused, and a lot more women. So, Well, let's get started. Number one. This 1973 Hugo-winning novella, Hugo-award-winning uh -huh. novella, bears in all respects other than the stature and color of its aliens uh -huh. a remarkable resemblance to the plot of Avatar. Yes. Although the author, not being Harlan Ellison, ah. <laughs> has not attempted to sue James Cameron. Uh -huh. <laughs> Can you tell me who wrote that novella? And uh, it's 1973 Hugo-award-winning novella. Uh, remarkable resemblance to the plot of Avatar, but the stature and color of the aliens is different. I can tell you the name of the story. I can tell you why it is related to Harlan Ellison, you bastard. Oh. 
And uh, I can guess at the author. I can't I can't be 100 percent sure. I believe the story is probably called The Word for World is Forest. That is correct. Thank you. And it's um, it might be James Tiptree or Ursula Le Guin, but I don't know for sure. It's Ursula. Yay. Good for me. And. Uh, it was actually in one of the Dangerous Visions anthologies, one of oh, Harlan Ellison's anthologies. That Harlan Ellison put together. So there. Wow. There you go. All right. So can we stop now? Because I'm, I'm ratting. <laughs> it is remarkably similar, um, almost identical to Avatar. Yeah. Roger uh, says that the aliens in Ursula Le Guin's novel, or novella are little green men rather than blue giants. Yep. They're not Disney designed for their sexiness. Mm-hmm. But it's um, that's it's, a nice it, title too. She's it, the, the word for world is forest. Yeah. yeah, very nice. All right, number two, this Nebula and Hugo Award-winning novel from 1974 okay. was written by a Vietnam vet, and is effectively a riposte to Starship Troopers. Oh, okay. Um, I never read the whole thing through, but I think it's probably um, the Forever War. By Correct. Joe Haldeman. That's correct. Yeah, because that was a a um, about that. What was pushback that? on uh, on Robert Heinlein, who I think said one one point he read the thing and he liked it because hmm. there there's a certain yeah, Starship Troopers is kind of pro military, just a little bit. It is Starship <laughs> Troopers. The movie is way pro military. Yeah. Starship Troopers. The book is slightly more interesting and nuanced, but still, it's not. It it's a story. Of, it's the boot camp story, mm-hmm. and a bunch of other junk thrown in for fun. All right, number three. This 1972 novel, perhaps predictably no awards, <laughs> maybe that's a clue. Okay. Is presented as the work of an alternate universe Adolf Hitler who followed his brother Alloy, A L O I S, Alice, to America okay. in the 1920s and became a pulp fiction illustrator and science fiction writer. <laughs> It brilliantly satirizes the fascistic and homoerotic elements in much popular science fiction and fantasy. Fuck if I know. The only thing I can think of is there was a a short story called, I think, Catch That Zeppelin by Fritz Leiber, in which there's this overlap between two universes and the various people who were named Hitler or Churchill in each one are, you know... Are, are entirely different people and are pissed off that their good name has been besmirched by these. Oh. And uh, but I can't I can't think of what it might be. Uh, Roger's answer is the Iron Dream. Oh, by Norman okay. Spinrad. Oh yeah, okay. And I, I know Nor- friends with his ex-wife. Yeah, yeah. So. yeah Norman, science fiction writer in her own right. And and both very fine writers. I, there's a couple of things by Norman Spinrad I like very much. I, I have never read the Iron Dream. Number four, by possibly the only American science fiction writer of his generation to come out as an actual Marxist and one-time national organizer of the Socialist Labor Party. This 1974 utopian novel explores what the world might look like if we implemented a minimum guaranteed income. Oh, hell. Um, First of all, I know it's not Orson Scott Card. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we kind of know that he was um, not—he was not a communist. There was a, there was a novel. I think, yeah. I think I've alluded to it before, called *The Anarchistic Colossus*. It's probably not it, but nope. that was one where there was a guaranteed minimum um, sustenance for people. But I, I don't know—I don't know the name of the novel. This one is called *Commune 2000 A.D.* by Mac Reynolds. Okay. Yeah. Number five. 
1969 novel made it into a rather mediocre 1973 film by an anarchist science fiction and fantasy novelist from Britain uh-huh. who had a side career as an occasional musician with the space rock band Hawkwind and as a collaborator with the Sex Pistols. All right. It is the first installment of a series featuring the adventures of its narcissistically hip, nihilistic anti-hero. And it's a 1969 novel made into a rather mediocre 1973 film. 1969. Can I have the author's first name? Michael. The only one I know is Michael Moorcock. That's correct. I have no idea what the novel might okay. be. Okay. <laughs> the Final Program. Oh, okay. P-R-O-G-R-A-M-M-E. E. Okay. Yes, of course it would be E. Yes. All right. Yes. Number six. A 1976 novel published only in 1986 uh-huh. after the author's untimely death. This near-future dystopia is set in a U.S. ruled by fascistic president Ferris F. Fremont. Oh, I know this one. Who bears a remarkable resemblance to Richard Nixon. To Richard And depicts the fate of a hapless resistance group. Yeah. Okay. This was the unfinished novel that I think was finished after Philip K. Dick's death. Mm -hmm. Yes. And it's called Radio Free Albemuth. That's right. Yeah! I read Uh, the damn thing. And it is actually the description of Nixon, which is really who he's talking about, as the first communist president. mm Mm-hmm. Because he was a Quaker, as you know. Yes. So early, early, when he was a child, his mother basically helped him hatch. She, he was part of her plan to take over the U.S. government, as I recall it, or at least partially. Because um, he'd, he'd have to become a rabid anti-communist fighter mm-hmm. in order to gain the trust of the American oh, people yeah. and to make him president so that he could take over and become whatever. But yeah. Well, was, Roger says that you would get partial credit for saying Vallis. Yep. Because uh, Philip K. Dick recycled elements of Radio Free Albemuth into the novel Vallis when his publishers rejected the original. And were, also, this is now a film starring Alanis Morissette from 2010. Oh, I didn't okay. know that. Yeah, Vallis is part of his – okay, let me see if I can get this right. Vallis stands for Vast Active Living Intelligence System. Suck on that. Oi. And uh, it's part of his Vallis trilogy, which includes – the Transmigration of Timothy Archer. I think that's the right name. I'm not positive. I think that's right. And The Divine Invasion. Oh. And it all stems from a either a deeply uh, uh, a psychotic break caused by years of drug abuse or divine bit of, uh, I don't know what, in his life. Something happened to Philip Dick and it changed him radically as a writer and as a person. And he was chock full of enough um, good Christian uh, theological scholarship to make sense of it from a a writer's point of view. Generally speaking, it looks like he went nuts based on a lot of drugs he was doing. But he wrote his way through it, which is what good writers can do sometimes. And he produced these amazing novels, Mm -hmm. which are very good. I mean, they're they're certainly um, very Philip K. Dickian and very hopeful and very intriguing. And in fact – I have discussed one of those novels with our pastor at one point. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, that's enough about Philip Dick. Number seven. Another near-future dystopian novel published in 1972 describing the bleak existence of tenants of an eponymous housing project sited on East 11th Street, Manhattan in around 2025. 
Um, I know that. The first name of the author is Thomas. No, no, I'm not. not I'm not going to get it right. I know that. I know that Cornbluth and also I think Philip Dick had a lot of fun with apartments being named numerically outward from Manhattan. Oh, okay. So if you lived at like the thirty thousand block, you were out in Nebraska somewhere because mm-hmm. it was mm. just. But I don't know. I don't know the name of that. It's called Three Thirty Four, by Thomas Dish D I S C H. I know Thomas Dish has a very. The last Thomas Dish novel I read, I think, was called Camp Concentration. Hmm which is where they were trying to use syphilis or some sort of social disease to engineer genius. Wow. Found if, if you got this, these kind of diseases, eventually they'd kill you, but you'd become very smart before you died. And the whole idea was we would harvest your intelligence. And anyway, it was kind of a depressing, <laughs> depressing <laughs> novel, but I'm familiar with the works of Thomas Dish. Number eight. A series of dense postmodernistic meditations on sexuality, power, and the nation of nature of fiction, at least partially set in a fantasy world, aren't they all? Uh, published between 1979 and 1987, huh? and not inappropriately, most recently republished by Wesleyan University Press. And you, according to uh, Roger, you should bloody well get this. <laughs> a series of drift glass should bloody well get this what, was it is it drift glass by samuel delaney no it is by no. samuel delaney okay it's the never never yawn series nope don't know never read it okay. i've read a lot by sam delaney but I, I never read that all right i'm a bad person number nine but it, chip sam chip delaney i believe one of the earliest and first african-american science fiction authors there you go yeah Number nine, yet another near-future dystopia, published in 1968. Jesus. Now you know why I stopped reading science fiction. Depicting life in a grossly overpopulated United States in 2010. Okay. Oh, yeah. Although the title refers to another location altogether. Yes, yes. And? A wonderful book. Um, And I've referred to it before in my blog, Stand on Zanzibar. Yes, you have. By John Bruner. Right. The title refers to, it's it's a series of... Uh, it's a big novel full of all these things happening to all these different characters. There's war and there's terrorism and there's overpopulation. Um, and overpopulation is the big problem. And throughout the book, it the, the, the trick, the gimmick is if every human being had one square foot of land to stand on, they would now be on the beach of the island of Zanzibar. Ah. If every human being – and as the novel goes along, eventually the no, during the course of the novel, which is not very long – Population is growing so fast that eventually you're now standing up to your waist. You've completely covered. So stand on Zanzibar is the is the metric for measuring human population, and it's it's a terrific novel. And it, it predicts a lot of things. It predicts, um, as I recall, the collapse of the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. um, the rise of China as an industrial power, the use of supercomputers to control everything, um, a bunch of other stuff that's really quite. Um, I, science fiction never promises to be prophetic, but he Bruner thought a lot about the future and thought about what it would look like and got a lot of it right. All right. Number 10, the last question from Roger. <laughs> a right. 1972 novel set on the twin worlds of St. Anne and St. Croix oh. 
and dealing, amongst other things, with questions of genocide, colonialism, and a father's inalienable right to use his children in medical experiments? That's a good question. You want me to give you the author? Yeah. Gene Wolfe. Um, I don't know. The fifth head of Cerebus. Cerberus. 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 Okay. Yes, I've heard of it. Right. I've never read it. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Roger. Thank now we're you. Gonna Great part, questions, Roger. Yeah, part two. From, Uh-oh. From Lawrence in Phoenix. Hello, Lawrence. Your knowledge, dear Driftglass, your knowledge of politics and science fiction surpass my own in depth and breadth. I have never encountered your like before. This is where I, if we were meeting, would nod my head while pressing my right fist into my left palm. You answer questions on science fiction I have never heard of, much less read. But I am a Dune expert. Oh, Oh, Lord. (laughs) My mother read Dune to me when I was nine. Uh I still have that tattered paperback and a 25th anniversary hardback. You have That's nice. You know, that's a good mom. Lawrence has read all six Frank Herbert Dune books several times. Every spring in my junior year through mid-college, I consumed them all. I read the first Brian Herbert expansion book. I didn't buy or read the others. Before I test you with Dune, here are some softballs. In Heinlein's The Roads Must Roll, what was the name of the revolutionary movement that figures prominently in the plot? Oh, shit. I could tell you nine different things about that story, including it predicting the teamster strike <laughs> and the name of the name of the revolutionary movement is functionalism yeah it sounds about right okay in yeah. asimov's the end of eternity uh-huh what is the name of the time travel device oh please i can tell you nine things about that too including it's a really good novel <laughs> and they keep trying to correct history by erasing things and they keep making mistakes and eternity is the name of the organization that is charged with keeping time running correctly. Ooh. Um, but I can't tell you what the device is. I remember it was powered by a crack and it was like a Dr. Who device. It was powered by, by infinite universal energy or something directly from the sun or whatnot, but it was, uh, all right. Well, it's called the kettle. Yeah. All right. Yes. And here is a Star Trek, the original series episode question, <laughs> a taste of Armageddon. All right. What does Kirk order Scotty to do if the landing party is not released in two hours? It's also known as the opposite of the prime directive. Well, the prime directive is don't interfere. Right. So the opposite would be interfere. Interfere. But fuck out of this place. <laughs> um, I, I thought it was – since you put it that way, I, I would I would be second-guessing myself. But I'm going to go with my initial impulse, which is – a taste for Armageddon is where computers fight wars for them, mm-hmm. and people docilely go to the destructo booth right. after the hit. Right. And it's just like the orgasmatron in uh, Sleeper, but instead of orgasms, it just yeah. kills you. It's not the little death; it's just right. death. <laughs> it's just yeah. death. <laughs> and death. And uh, I think that his. Like to bust up the computer or, or start, he'll start making them fight real war or something like that. And that will screw everything up. So they'll have to yeah, hurry it's, up. It's actually General Order 24, destroy the planet's surface from orbit. Oh, see, that's a good order. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wow. All right. Now, uh, the next part of the letter says, and now it is Canley, may thy blade chip and shatter. Oh, is that a question? <laughs> no, that's what he says to you. Okay. Canley's, about the following. 
Canley is is um. That's what Lawrence said to you. Canley is revenge, not revenge. Canley is vengeance. Ah. Um, when you 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 swear, it's actually a formal thing that you do when you are going to declare yourself that you're going to seek vengeance against a house that has shamed or debased or otherwise done something terrible to you. You will seek Canley. Ha ha! So let's go. Fade Rotha Harkonnen. Uh huh. Am I saying that right? Probably is nearly killed by a slave gladiator who is an expert fighter and not handicapped with the usual drugs. Ah. How does Fade win? He cheats. He um he poisons him. Yes, how in what way? There's um, a specific way he poisons him. I think yeah, I think it's the Hamlet method. I think he poisons one of the swords or his short sword or his little knife yes, or something and nicks him or cuts him and that slows him down just enough to do him in. Uh, against custom, he has poison on his long blade instead of his short blade. Ah, yes, yes, yes. He also uses a hypnotically implanted code word to momentarily confuse the slave, giving him the opportunity to strike with the poison blade. So, like you said, he cheated. Yeah. In in Dune, there's, there's basically naked knife fighting, and there's, if you remember the royal house, you have a personal shield. Oh. It protects your body, and, and you have to strike and then slow way down to sneak the blade through the shield, which it works against you when there's no shield fighting because you, you slow your own moves down out of reflex. So I think that was a case where he was fighting for real and uh, needed a little extra help. And, of course, he cheated because those, those fucking those Harkonnens. Those fucking Harkonnens, man. Yeah. So what is the Great Convention? <sighs> the Great Convention is an agreement between the great houses um, on how to fight war, on how to conduct themselves and how to do warfare, because they can do each other terrific damage. So they, they limit the use of, I think, certain types of warfare or certain types of weapons or something like that. Okay. Well, that's very close. You get half credit for that. Mm-hmm. Use of atomic weapons against humans yeah. is prohibited. Any violation will result in retaliation in kind against the offending house mm-hmm. by every other house. Yeah, it's it's if the UN worked, that was what that's what it would look like. <laughs> what is the common imperial language and what are its contemporary ancestors? Ah, uh, man. It's around the tip of my tongue. I want to say Gaelic. But that's, that's not right. right. No. Gaelic. G-A-L-A-C-H, he says. It's the no. answer. That's not no, right? That's, that, that's right. But my, I think that word is based on galactic. Oh. And I, I was thinking of Gaelic as in oh. Irish, Celtic. Okay. What are the contemporary ancestors to this imperial language? Oh, I'm going to go with um, Cobol and Fortran. <laughs> English and Russian. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Which of Duke Leto's captains apparently want to bone the Lady Jessica? Oh. Two of them. Uh, and how uh, do they solve that problem? Uh, Gurney Halleck. Yep. Wanted to do her. Mm-hmm. And he did. He did. That's how he solved his problem. That's right. He waited until the Duke was off, until the Duke got killed. Yep. Um, very much like uh, Game of Thrones. Kind of, you, you yeah. Kill the, you kill the, major, the, the male head of household in the first book. And then you bone his wife. And then, then you have an adventure. Yeah, okay. Um, and the second one was Duncan Idaho, but I don't think Duncan, Duncan ever Idaho. got away. And he doesn't get to bone uh, Lady Jessica. So how does he resolve his problem with wanting to do that? I don't, I don't, don't know that he ever did. He paid a prostitute to dress up like her or... Mm-hmm. Well, 
he, he's he's actually by the time he gets to do it, he's a reincarnated clone. So oh it's no, that's not, bullshit. That's bullshit. it's not him. Yes. Yeah, yeah. He that's got he got cloned. As I recall, the Ix Ix Ixians, I think Ixians cloned him and gave him metal eyes and a bunch of other freaky features. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that doesn't count. That's you you can't count Duncan Idaho 2.0 as the real Duncan Idaho. Okay. So but sorry, Duncan. Du- Duncan's reincarnated clone does bone Jessica's look-alike daughter. I see. Alia. Oh, Alia. And they are an age-appropriate couple because Duncan is a clone at that point. Okay. Yeah. I thought he just drew some lipstick on his hand and called it. Mwah, mwah, mwah. All right. What is the name of Emperor Shaddam the Fourth's friend with a speech impediment who is also a deadly assassin? Emperor Shaddam the Fourth's friend with a speech impediment. Give me a hint. He's a count. And they're uh, all counts. That they're counts. All, yeah, that's that's no. No, I, I don't know. Count Hazamar Fenring. Yeah, I would not have remembered that. All right. What Actually, is the closing line of dialogue in Dune? This is the last one. Spoken by Jessica to Chani. In the novel Dune. Something like, you'll bear his children, but you'll never be queen or something like that. Hmm. History will call us wives. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, uh, well, I, I can't take credit for that. But Chani was the woman he loved. Ah. And he lo- he he Paul. Who's he? Who's Paul, he? The hero of the, of the story is Paul Maudib. Paul, who's the House of Treaties. The good guys. And he's the guy who Jessica gave birth to rather than a daughter. Um, he was supposed to, She was supposed to have a daughter by her duke that she was never married to but she actually loved him as opposed to being royally hooked up with him so she gave him a son and because there's this multi-generational breeding program to to breed this super person who can do amazing things and do prophecy and see the future and all kinds of shit a male there's version a matri- there's a matriarchy religion there is right the, the, female um priestesses and right. right and she's a witch and she learns how to do all these you know, amazing mind control, voice control, sexy sex control things. And she was supposed to have a daughter and she had a son. So one generation early, she she screwed up the breeding program. Um, and Paul, being of royal blood, um, fell in love with a Fremen woman named Chuck. Oh, my God. And who has who had his children. But he held him because he was also royalty. He also took a wife. So he had the woman he was married to to make alliances and he had the woman he loved, who he had children by. So this is just like the Book of Genesis. It well, yeah. <laughs> everybody borrows. Everybody borrows from the Old Testament. Everybody All steals right. from the Bible and from Shakespeare. Everybody. Yeah, everybody does. does. All right. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you to both of you for sending in those letters. You can send your stump the chump questions to me. So that Drift Class doesn't get to see him and Google him, although he wouldn't do that. He's he's an honorable man. But mostly, mostly. my email address is bluegalsblog, all one word, at gmail.com. Bluegals, G-A-L-S, blog, B-L-O-G, and blue, the color. So, yeah, send those in, and we'll read them on the air and stump the chump, and we appreciate it. Thank you. I really, Actually, I really do have fun doing this. this it is fun. It is fun, even though I haven't read most of these. we got to go now. We do. we got to go. Bye.